friends, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Blood on the Mount by a group from Stark and Harrison Counties who call themselves a basic wagon. They're our featured Ohio music artists tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. All right. You left us on pins and needles in that first part of the Donner Party story, Paula. But before you get started, let's review where we are. Okay. Actually, it's a good time for two words of warning here. First, if you haven't listened to part one, stop now and go find that one. We are well into a journey here. And if you haven't been with us all along, you're going to miss some important context. Our second warning is this. Our first part was pretty mild compared to the topics we're gonna explore tonight. I did not intentionally get graphic, but there is no way to tell the story without covering the cannibalism involved. So please be advised of this before you continue. Now, as I told you in the beginning, Three of the most significant people in this Donner Party tragedy were from Ohio. You've met two of them so far. Lansford Hastings, he was that Mount Vernon attorney who turned into an explorer, moved west, and enticed pioneers headed for California into taking his shortcut through Utah. That was a disaster that has now put our Donner Party wagon train far behind schedule with winter closing in. And you learned about John Snyder, the popular fiddle-playing wagon driver from Ohio who was killed in a fight with James Reed, one of the wagon train's leaders. Now, Reed was banished from the party after killing Snyder, and he managed to make it to California on his own. But he had to leave behind his wife and children who are still with the wagon train. So, We have not heard the last of him by any means. And then you took us right up to the point where the Donner Party families were entering the Sierra Mountains, where they're going to get trapped by winter. Yes, Steve, that's exactly where we are. Now, are you ready to meet the third Ohio character in this drama? Well, after you called him the Donner Party's biggest cannibal, I'm pretty sure I don't want to meet him, but I do want to hear about him. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Chapter three. Johann Ludwig Christian Kiesberg. Those who knew and loved him, and I don't think there were many, called him Lewis. Now, I haven't mentioned Lewis Kiesberg before, but rest assured, the entire Donner Party is well aware of this guy. If Ohio's John Snyder had ranked among the party's most popular people before he was killed in that fight with James Reed, Ohio's Lewis Kiesberg was easily among the least popular. One survivor, Jacob Harlan, would later write that Kiesberg struck him as someone predisposed to derangement of mind. And that was his assessment before the tragedy struck. Kiesberg was a tall 32-year-old German immigrant with a thin brown beard and cold blue eyes. He was the son of a Lutheran clergyman And highly educated, he spoke four languages. He was born in Prussia, which is where he married his young, pretty wife, Philippine. And the couple sailed to the United States in 1942, settling in the Cincinnati area. Lewis supported his family as a brewer, and the couple had their first child, a daughter named Ada. But Ohio was not fated to be their final destination. After four years here, California was beckoning. Philippine was 23 years old when the journey began and pregnant with their second child. She gave birth to a son, Louis Jr., on the trail. The Keysbergs, they traveled with two wagons, and they also had with them an elderly gentleman who was also from Ohio. He's a man we only know by a last name, Mr. Hardcoop. 
Hardcoop was a cutler by trade and had a farm near Cincinnati. He had a son and daughter back in Antwerp, Belgium, and his long-term plans were to return to Cincinnati after seeing California, dispose of his farm, and then use the proceeds to return to Antwerp. He was upwards of 60 years old and wanted to spend his declining years with his children. Actually, given the Herculean effort it takes to travel to California in this day and age, I'm not sure why he would want to take such a side trip before heading back to Belgium, which is obviously thousands of miles in the complete opposite way. But according to survivors, that's what he had told them. Now, the Keysbergs and Hardcoop hitched their wagons to the Donner Party sometime after Missouri, while the caravan was rolling through the heart of America. Keysburg made an impression pretty fast, and it wasn't a good one. For starters, he beat his wife. Survivors would later write at how disturbed they were by the way he treated her. Keysburg also caught their attention when he lobbied the hardest to hang James Reed for killing John Snyder. If you'll recall, Reed and Snyder paired off when a couple of wagons got tangled up. Snyder was delivering a good beating to Reed when Reed produced a knife and put it in Snyder's chest. This is one of the little mysteries that could never be fully resolved. Half of the witnesses would go on to call the act murder. The other half defended Reed to their last breath, insisting it was self-defense. There was no question as to which side Kiesberg was on. After Snyder was killed, Kiesberg propped a wagon tongue in the air. That's the long timber that runs the length of the wagon and attaches to the oxen. And he demanded Reed be hung from it then and there, right in front of his wife and four children. Well, cooler heads prevailed, and instead, they banished Reed from the party without food or a weapon because they considered it a death sentence, but at least it's one his family wouldn't have to watch. If anyone doubted Kiesberg's hard heart, they doubted no more two days later after Snyder's death on October 7. That's the day Kiesberg forced the elderly and ailing Mr. Hardcoop out of his wagon, telling him he had to walk or die. I will say this was a very difficult part of the journey. Most of the families had already dumped most of their belongings on the side of the trail, and able-bodied family members had been walking much of the way, all because they needed to lighten the load for their exhausted, underfed, underwatered oxen. In many cases, the families buried their prized possessions, intending that they might make it back the next year to collect them. This was so serious, there's even a story they told of a man who pleaded, pleaded to keep the rolling pin that had belonged to his mother. But they made the teary-eyed man toss it as an unnecessary weight. And there were fewer and fewer oxen every day. The Paiute Indians out this way were relentless, slipping into camp on an almost nightly basis, to steal or kill dozens of the beasts. Now, Mr. Hardcoop, he had walked for a long time already, and his legs had given out days before, which is why he was in the wagon to begin with. There was no way this old man was going to be able to walk to California. Even though other people implored Kiesberg to leave Mr. Hardcoop in his wagon, he refused. And frankly... They themselves were unwilling to pick him up and risk the little life they thought remained in their own overworked animals. Mr. Hardcoop, his feet black and so swollen that they had split, was last seen sitting beneath some sagebrush later that afternoon as the last of the Donner Party passed him by and left him in the dust to die alone. There was another incident after that, and Kiesberg's role has never been determined to anyone's full satisfaction. 
It was October 14, and Kiesberg was traveling at the rear of the train along with three other Germans, Augustus Spitzer, Joseph Reinhardt, and Mr. Wolfinger. Wolfinger had lost the last of his oxen to marauding Indians, so he decided to bury his possessions since he had no way of transporting them anymore. Kiesberg, Spitzer, and Reinhardt stayed behind to help him with this job. According to survivors, some time later, Kiesberg rather leisurely appeared back with the rest of the train. He was alone. After that, Spitzer and Reinhardt showed up. Mr. Wolfinger's family asked where he was. Indians, the men said. There had been an attack. Mr. Wolfinger was killed. Well, that was a lie. Because in a few weeks, as Joseph Reinhardt lays dying on that snow-blocked mountain pass, he will confess to murdering Mr. Wolfinger and stealing his possessions. There was no reason to doubt this confession, obviously, but survivors noted in their own diaries that Kiesberg, for some reason, had possession of Mr. Wolfinger's rifle. No one could explain how that came to be. So now you know a little bit about Kiesberg, and we have reached late October, and the Donner Party has reached the Sierra Nevada mountain range. They had some good news here. A man the party had sent ahead to get food from Setters Ford in California. He returned. He had seven mules loaded with provisions, and he also brought with him two Native American guides named Louis and Salvador. They were also able to report to Mrs. Reed and her four children that her banished husband, James, had made it to California. But, you know the saying, sometimes the bright light at the end of the tunnel is just a freight train coming your way, because there was no amount of good news that could stop what was about to hit them. The travelers were just 150 miles from their destination. They might as well have been on Mars. The Sierra Nevada is a 70-mile-wide mountain range. On a good day, it's a hard ride. But in the winter, it's impassable in a wagon. And winter was here. The snow had started to fall. The party attempted one last push over the mountains, but the snow wouldn't stop. And when the families reached snowdrifts of 10 to 15 feet high, they had no option but to settle in for the long winter. The families in the lead of this caravan the Breens, the Keesbergs, the Reeds, the Graves, the Murphys, stopped at Truckee Lake. The Donner brothers, Jacob and George, were half a day's ride behind them. They had stopped because an axle broke on one of their wagons. In trying to fix that wagon, George Donner, the official leader of this wagon train, sliced his hand open while chiseling the wood. It didn't look all that serious of an injury at first. They had no idea how wrong they were. So the Donner Party was in two groups now. About 60 people, half of them children, were at Truckee Lake. They set about building these primitive log cabins to live in, made of pine logs with dirt floors and pieces of oxhide on the roof. Further back and down the mountain, the Donner brothers and others with them totaled 21 people, most of whom were children. They didn't build cabins. They pitched tents. As poor as these shelters were, they were the easy part of the equation. The real problem was food. The new provisions brought on those mules from Fort Sutter went quickly. They had to feed 80 people. Then they slaughtered their cattle, then their beloved dogs. When that was gone, they boiled the ox hides into a glue-like jelly, a repulsive but edible substance. Ox and horse bones were boiled repeatedly to make broth. One family would later talk about how they picked apart the ox hide rug that they had put in front of their fire pit 
They roasted the pieces and consumed that. And when that was gone, they started eyeing several members of their party who had died since they pitched their camps. People whose remains had been stored in the snowbanks. The survivors were suffering hypothermia and starvation. They were delirious. But they knew that out in those snowbanks was a great store of protein. And slowly, one by one, most of them relented. Despite the bit of food they could get from their dead, and keep in mind, one human body doesn't last that long when you have more than 80 people to feed. They were terribly weak. Many of them simply lay in their cabins and tents without moving to conserve energy. But occasionally, one would make the half-day trek to check on the Donners and the others who were with them further down the pass. And that's when they learned the cut on George Donner's hand had become terribly infected. This is Alex Hastie, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. In January, there were two attempts to try and send people for help. James Reed's wife, Margaret, led a group of three women and one man toward the West Slope, hoping to find someone who could bring food and rescuers to the others. They were gone just four days when a blizzard turned them back. Franklin Graves, he made the next attempt. He fashioned 14 pairs of snowshoes using oxbows and hide, and he led a party of 17 men, women, and children on foot to try and cross the mountain. Historians would later label this group the Forlorn Hope Party. This group became hopelessly lost. After weeks of rambling with no direction, One of their members, Patrick Dolan, proposed one of them should volunteer to die in order to feed the others. But in the end, nobody had to volunteer. People in this unsheltered party started succumbing to the elements, among them Patrick Dolan. They took him up on his offer. The forlorn hope party ate him and others who had died taking care to keep the meat separated so no family member had to eat the flesh of a relative. And when that food ran out, some of them began eyeing two people in their party that they thought were expendable. Louis and Salvador, those Indian guides that came back from Fort Sutter with the food right before they had started up the mountain. Louis and Salvador had refused to eat human meat and had been without food for nine days. A man named William Foster used that as the excuse that they were going to die anyway, and he shot them both so they could be eaten. Thirty-three days after leaving the camp at Truckee Lake, the Forlorn Hope Party made it to the Sacramento Valley with the help of an Indian tribe and a rescue team sent to fetch them. Of the 17 who had set out, only seven were still alive. Now, back in California, James Reed had been desperately trying to put together a rescue party, 
But the military in California, they were actually in the middle of fighting the Mexican-American War. And that effort had taken up most of the able-bodied men. But then the survivors of the Forlorn Hope Party were found and they started sharing their stories, including how they had to resort to cannibalism to stay alive. If this generated a fair amount of disgust, it fostered even more sympathy. The residents of a town called Yerba Buena, many of them immigrants who had recently traveled the Oregon Trail themselves, raised $1,300 and started organizing rescue efforts. The first rescue party headed out on February 4. It took two weeks, but seven experienced mountain men managed to scale the mountain pass and reach the survivors at Truckee Lake. They didn't see them at first. The cabins were completely buried by the snow. But someone in one of those cabins heard their shouts. Mrs. Murphy crawled out from a hole and found the men looking down at her. They recalled her first words. Are you men from California or do you come from heaven? The relief party doled out food in small portions, concerned that it might kill them if the emaciated migrants overate. And then they continued down the pass to where the Donner brothers were staying. George's arm was now so gangrenous he couldn't move. The rescuer selected 23 people to accompany them back down the mountain. That left 21 people who had to stay behind for the next rescue party. That party came on March 1st, and it included James Reed. When they reached George Donner's tent, he was nearly dead. The gangrene now covered his shoulder. But his wife, Tamzine, refused to go with the rescuers, insisting she would stay with her husband until he was gone. They were more disturbed by what they found in the tent of his brother, Jacob Donner. Jacob didn't make it. His body was in a hole in the snow, dismembered. And in his family's tent, his children were being nourished by their father's organs. This second relief party took everyone with them except George and Tamsin Donner and Louis Kiesberg. Kiesberg's infant son, he had died during the winter in the mountains. His wife and his three-year-old daughter went with the first relief team. The little Ada didn't make it out alive. I want to note here, I'm making short work of these rescue efforts, but they were Herculean efforts. These pioneers were half dead already. Ada wasn't the only person to die on the rescue trip. They had to still walk through blizzards. In one case, two families reached a point where they were just too exhausted to care what happened next. And the rescuers had to leave them behind on the western slope because they refused to move anymore. Some of them died where they stopped. Now, the last relief team reached Truckee Lake on April 17. Keysburg was alive. So they moved down to the Donner encampment, and there they found George Donner dead and partially eaten. The rescuers didn't think the loving wife who stayed behind to care for him had done that, but they couldn't ask her. She wasn't there. The rescue team confronted Louis Keysburg. They found him preparing a meal of human lungs and liver. They also uncovered gold in his waistcoat, gold that had belonged to the Donners. Kiesberg admitted the stew he was making was Tamzine Donner, but he denied he had killed her. He said she had traveled from her camp down the pass to his cabin in Truckee Lake, a trip that left her all but dead. She asked him to find the gold that they had been carrying and get it to her children who were now at Sutter's Fort. That's why he had it in his possession, he said. She died that night as she lay in his cabin. Only then did he eat her. The rescue team thought this story was a little suspect, but figured if someone wanted to challenge him, they could do it in a California courtroom. 
Kiesberg became the last member of the Donner Party to arrive at Setters Fort on April 29, 1847, where he was reunited with his wife, Philippine. News of the Donner Party tragedy made headlines in newspapers all over the country, and Kiesberg was vilified, mostly because of the stories told by the men in the rescue parties. He was portrayed as someone who didn't just eat human flesh reluctantly, but even preferably. Some journalists dubbed him the human cannibal and called the death of Tamzine Donner murder. Kiesberg may have been his own worst enemy in this image being painted of him. One story goes that Kiesberg would get drunk at the local bars and brag about his cannibalism, saying human meat was more delicious than California beef, and that Tamzine Donner's liver was the sweetest bite he had ever tasted. And other survivors contributed their memories of him. One child said Kiesberg had taken a small lad to bed one night to comfort him, and the next morning the boy was dead and hung up on the wall of his cabin like a slab of meat. This is probably the biggest mystery of the Donner Party that we have today, Kiesberg's role in it. He was clearly cast as the villain for decades, but modern historians have tried to clarify some things. They think a lot of the actions credited to him may be untrue. And modern day doctors said even if he did say or do some of those things, it might not have been completely his fault. Everything from PTSD to brain damage caused by starvation and hyperthermia would have contributed to his state of mind and his actions. Well, either way, Kiesberg is going to have his day in court because soon after recovering from his ordeal, he was accused of killing six of his fellow Donner Party members, including Tamzine, and stood trial. But there really was no evidence. The jury had really no choice but to acquit him. Then, soon after that, Kiesberg went back to court, this time on the other side of the room. He sued the members of his rescue team, saying they had fueled the vicious rumors and ruined his name. And again, Kiesberg won. Well, sort of. The jury sided in his favor. He had been slandered, but they gave him just $1 in damages. Kiesberg was dogged the rest of his life. He tried to open an inn in Sacramento, but people wouldn't stay there. The inn finally burned down. The cause of that fire, well, yet another mystery. His wife, Philippine, she died in 1877, leaving him to raise the two children that they had after the tragedy. When Kiesberg was 65, an author named C.F. McLashen, who was writing a book on the Donner Party, reached out to survivors and offered Kiesberg a chance to tell his story again, this time being 30 years later when emotions were less raw. And Kiesberg was not the drunk braggart comparing human flesh to California beef. He told the author that eating human flesh was revolting, that it made his blood curdle to think of it. The author also offered Kiesberg a chance at redemption. He arranged for him to meet the youngest surviving daughter of Tamzine Donner. Her name was Eliza. She had only been four years old on that mountain pass. Kiesberg agreed to meet her. The story is that when he saw her, he collapsed to his knees. He didn't deny eating her mother, but swore he didn't kill her. Eliza said she heard sincerity in his voice and took him at his word. Kiesberg died in 1895. He took his last breath in a hospital for the poor. A lot of people might have problems with the general idea of cannibalism in this story, but let me offer this viewpoint. It comes from an author named Michael Wallace, who wrote a book called The Best Land Under Heaven, The Donner Party in the Age of Manifest Destiny. 
And he told an interviewer this, what would you do if you are a mother watching your children starve and freeze to death? You've already eaten the horses and the oxen and boiled their hides into a horrible gelatinous concoction. You've eaten field mice and finally cut the throats of your beloved family dogs and eaten them, paws and all. But you know that there's protein that will keep you alive in those snowbanks. Anyway, many of the survivors in this tragedy went on to live full, productive lives. James Reed, for instance, became a prosperous citizen and a business leader in San Jose. But I want to close our story with the man we opened it with, Lansford Hastings of Mount Vernon. If you'll recall from part one, it had been Hastings' dream to encourage pioneers to populate California in such great numbers that their mere presence would create a bloodless revolution, turning California into its own empire, perhaps with Hastings himself as the emperor, or at least having some significant office. Well, those dreams we now know collapsed. The United States military, they won the Mexican-American War. And in 1848, the year after the Donner survivors were rescued, Mexico ceded California to the United States. Hastings tried practicing law again. And in the late 1850s, he moved his family to Yuma, Arizona, where he served as postmaster and as a territorial judge. When the Civil War broke out, this son of a Yankee sided with the South and became a major in the Confederate States Army. When the South lost, Hastings had even more reason to still want that private little country he had once dreamed of. He traveled to Brazil, hoping to establish his own colony there. And in 1867, he wrote The Emigrant's Guide to Brazil to attract potential colonists. But just three years into his effort in Brazil, he died of yellow fever. He was actually in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, where he was leading a shipload of settlers to his little colony when he succumbed. Steve, you have read quite a bit about the Donner Party. As a matter of fact, you are the one who called my attention to the fact that Lansford Hastings, John Snyder, and Louis Kiesberg all came from Ohio. So tonight, you're our armchair detective. (laughs) That's awesome. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. So let's chat. You know, the the Donner Party experience could fill a series of books, and it has. Survivors kept diaries. It's just a very well-preserved piece of history. So 
I had to, obviously, we couldn't share a fraction of what this journey was about. So rather than reviewing a lot of what we talked about, why don't we start by you telling us some parts of the story that I didn't include, but really stuck out to you in your own research? Okay. Well, what intrigued me was the Donner Party wasn't even the most deadliest party, you know, the wagon train that year. It actually belonged to the brother of Joseph Meeks, who was a very famous mountain man, Joseph Meeks. Uh, probably more, yeah, probably more famous than climate, actually. And uh, his name was Stephen Meeks. He led this train through a shortcut, just like the Donner Party, but this was up towards Oregon more. And this and was the same year? This was the exact same year. Wow. And in some places, there were bodies stacked six deep from typhoid. And they they wanted to get their hands on Stephen Meeks. It was kind of like the Donner Party where you know they were kind of spread out. So Stephen Meeks was actually days ahead. So he would leave note, notes just like Hastings. And, you know, for the party. But he did not want to go there because they thought he thought they would hang him. Well, unbeknownst to him, you mentioned Elijah. Uh, was Elijah White was yeah yeah he he had he went to Oregon and he came up with this draft of uh, the independence for Oregon to take back to Washington D.C. and they were actually taking another famous mountain man to help them lead their way and his name was Black Harris Black, Moses Black Harris and they called him Black Harris because he was black. Wow. And yes, he was actually considered the best mountain man when it came to came to snow, cold and snow. And luckily for Stephen Meeks, Black Harris looked at the declaration and found out that Elijah changed some words making him pretty much the ruler of Oregon and Moses Me- Moses was like, "You know what? I'm out." And he ended up staying at what they call the Dells in Oregon. While the Elijah left, and luckily for Stephen Meeks, Harris was there, and Harris came and saved that whole wagon train. And I, I could go into detail about what he did. What he did was unbelievable, but he literally saved so many more lives. You now, the imagine. Donner Party lost a little bit over 40 people total, about half their party. How many people died in Meeks' wagon train? 50-plus. Wow. Well, I guess it's clear the Donner Party would have certainly been more sensationalized just because of the cannibalism involved. And, you know, what I didn't know about this or what I had forgotten, if I had ever remembered it, was that this was something that California was they were watching this. They knew those families were up there in January. The last one wasn't rescued until the very end of April. So they had four full months where they knew this drama was taking place, trying to send out res- rescue parties, trying to bring these people back. It was something that was very live, very going on in their communities. They knew it was going on. That I think that, that was kind of a remarkable aspect of this whole thing. Right. We have to remember that when you go to make a trip like that, you leave April and you're supposed to be there in September. They were barely out of the desert in September. And I think it was September 16th. That's when they sent Stanton, Stanton, who ended up uh, running into Reed later, ahead, you know, to California. And he would actually pass through that a couple of times going to California for provisions. Uh, he, that, he was one of the most important people in the Forlorn Hope, Hope because he'd been through that past so many times. Actually, unfortunately for Stanton, when uh, he was uh, in the Forlorn Hope, he was actually a very short man, and he was more susceptible to snow blindness. So at one point, he just sat down, put his pipe in his mouth, and just stayed there. And that's how he was going to go out. Right. That's and he's the one out. he spent over a month bringing those mules full of food and the two Indian guides to the party. I mean, he certainly did his share. Correct. Hey, I know you know a story about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, why don't you relate that? Because that is a pretty cool little piece of trivia. Sure. As a matter of fact, uh, let's let me go this into a little bit more of a historical order because I have something that you don't even know. Oh, um, tell me. 
so right before the Reed Party set out, I think this was probably about February, uh, a group of soldiers stormed uh, a, a fort in California that was run by pretty much the governor of California, the Mexican governor, governor of California. They were banging on his door. He woke up. He put his finest suit on. His wife was pleading for him to run out the back door. He said no, because really he didn't think it would be too bad if California fell into the United States. He thinks Mexico's kind of ignored them anyway. He opens the door, and they come storm. They, they come storming in, and he breaks out the champagne. They, you know, they start writing, you know, the the surrender of California. And uh, a couple hours later, outside, there is a man creating a flag for the Republic of California, and he's drawing a bear with a star on it. Now, the Indians thought, that's kind of weird. Why are they, why does that look like a, why is there a pig with a star on it? It was a pretty (laughs) bad drawing. But that was actually the nephew of Abraham Lincoln. Oh, he's the one who designed California's flag. Correct. He was actually the nephew of Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. That is. Back in Springfield, Illinois, Abraham Lincoln actually considered going on the trip to California. He decided not to in the end because he had a pregnant wife and a brand new daughter. Him and Reed were very good friends. Uh, I believe Abraham Lincoln was his attorney. And they fought in the Black Hawk Wars together. Yeah, well, I read an account where Reed had said Abraham Lincoln was standing there as they took off. He went to see them off. And as their wagon trains are leaving, there's Abraham Lincoln saying goodbye to them because he had come pretty close to being part of it. (laughs) Another thing I wanted to bring up is what the pioneers didn't realize is they weren't dying from hunger. They actually thought that they were dying from hunger. They were actually dying from hyperthermia and hypothermia the difference is is you know going way above your body temperature and going way below your body temperature and that would actually happen even if it was cold outside so they were dying from all of that and of course the starvation wasn't helping because they weren't able to get enough energy but truly the body can live without food for a very long time And they just did not know that. Some of the proof that they were dying from hypothermia was Patrick Dolan. Foster remembered that a trick from a, I don't know, maybe he was in the cold before, but they would all lay under blankets stacked together and have their feet in the middle. And there would be somebody up in the middle who would kind of be propping up the, almost like a big giant tent, and they would trap their body heat. Well, Dolan ran out of the tent, stripped off all of his clothes. What's happening is that their cells are trying to produce as much heat as possible, and sometimes it overheats. It's a, it's a phenomenon that happens a lot with people who are going through hyperthermia, like uh, people climbing mountains. There's stories of people stripping off their clothes. And when we talk about cannibalism, it's very easy to... Oh, I would never do that. And then different stars above, they go through the process of what it's like to starve. It's one of the most driven things in your brain to consume food when you're starving. It's you're going to eat at a certain point and you're going to do whatever you can to eat. It's one of the strong, like I said, it's one of the strongest impulses in a human body is to eat when you were starving. So there's a chemical change in your brain where you're going to do anything you can to get that food. So some people who say, well, I would never do that. And some people may never do that. Now for those people, I offer up the story of Foster. You mentioned about Dolan. He passed away. They took up his offer to eat him. Well, the story is, is that Dolan came up with, let's all draw straws. Shortest straw, we kill, we eat. Now, unfortunately for Dolan, he's the one who drew the shortest straw. Well, they all start circling around him. 
foster came in and said, you know what, we're Christian, we're not going to kill to eat, we're not going to, we're just not going to do that. Later on, foster is the one who would kill those two Miwok Indians. One of the first people to die in the Forlorn Hope was Frank Graves. He thought he was dying of starvation. He called his daughters over to his side and he told, I think it was Sarah and Elizabeth, and said, you need to consume me if I, when I pass away, lest you suffer the same fate that I am suffering. So it was a little bit after this that the Dolan incident happened, and it still took them a day or so before they decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and consume meat so we can stay alive. And it was more of they needed to stay alive for their families back at Chucky Lake. And Franklin, Franklin Graves is the one that fashioned those snowshoes and made the effort to get these 17 people out of the mountain. And he ended up being the first one consumed, huh? Yeah, he was, uh, he was, him and Dolan were actually the first one consumed. Sarah and, uh, Sarah and Elizabeth ended up eating Dolan and the others ate Franklin. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, even Sarah's husband would end up, not end up making the trip all the way. And, when he when he died now foster foster in that group he did not he did not want to do cannibalism he was so against it he was he was the one who actually talked him out of not killing dolan in the first place well when sarah graves's husband died like a month later he was the first one who's like can we at least eat him and sarah graves said you can't hurt him now oh he went back and and foster he's the one that killed the two Indians who were with them. And that is actually, they say, historians say, that is the only instance where they know for sure that living people on this trip were killed in order to be eaten. Now, people obviously accused Kiesberg of killing Tamzine, but there was no evidence for that. But they knew that Foster killed these Indians. He didn't deny it. Right. And the story goes with that is uh, they kind of noticed they were looking at them kind of strange. So they actually took off. The group ended up catching back up with them later. One account says that they were very close to death. Another one, another account says, no, Foster just straight out murdered them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So another thing I wanted to bring up was uh, where all this cannibalism happened is actually today's location for Disney's Sugar Bowl. What is yeah. that? Sugar Bowl. Sugar Bowl is a the ski resort for Walt Disney. Oh. And where most of that cannibalism happened, happened there. It actually gets about 500 inches of snow a year. It's really one of the deepest places where you can find the snow. I mean, it, on average, there's 200, 200 inches of snow up there every day during the wintertime. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Wow, that is really interesting. So a place that had such a history of such terrible tragedy is a place where people go for joy. That's right. That's really interesting. Some of them probably don't even realize that, you know, they're skiing past places where people were, you know, were very desperate. Yeah. Now, Truckee Lake was later renamed Donner Lake. It's Donner Lake today. And the Fremont Pass... Um, is now called Donner Pass. So a lot of those areas are preserved by name also. Right. There's uh, also a memorial set up there for the Donner Party, too. I thought you would like this, though. In analyzing the death patterns among the Donner Party, it was found that females who were older than five but younger than 50 and members of large families had the highest survival rate. Of the group's 53 males, 28 died while only eight of the 34 females died. That means if you were a female, you were twice as likely to live. Women have a greater percentage of surface fat that insulates them against the cold. Uh, Females also consume energy less quickly than men, 
I totally believe that because, yeah, women have more fat. And, you know, I mean, you know, just when you're dieting, men lose weight a lot faster than women's metabolism just isn't the same. So I could see them totally retaining their their weight a lot easier than men. Men needed more food and they right. weren't going to get it. So five women and eight men made up the forlorn hope that made that 33 day trip. Seven died, all of them men. Wow, so all the women made that. Yeah. They think the biggest reason why women survive is because of the personality trait, namely a female temperament that relies more on cooperation than aggression, which men are. Also meant the difference between life and death out there. Two of the Donner Party men died as a result of murder before the group even reached the mountains. So that shows you men are more aggressive. And the women are more willing to work together to uh, to make something happen to benefit the group. Very interesting. Wow, that's a really interesting statistic. Yeah, it just, it it was towards the end of the forlorn hope. It was the women who were pushing the men, like we got to keep going, we got to keep going. And they were they thought it would take only six days, but it turned into thirty three days. And that was what was crazy. And there was one point where if they would have just went, they couldn't see past this ridge. If they could have went over that ridge, they would have seen green pasture below. I can't even imagine how they survived 33 days. I mean, they are they don't have a shelter. They're not in their cabins and the tent back at Trekkie Lake. They're actually just out there wandering. And I just can't imagine how they any of them survived those elements for 33 days. Yeah, it's just, it's a wild story. And to think that uh, you blame it on Ohio. <laughs> uh, well, it was Lansford Hastings' fault. He got it all, he got everybody off the Oregon Trail and going down that nasty cutoff. There was a little quote I saw somewhere. I think it was Virginia. I forget who she was the daughter of her. She wrote one of her cousins after it was all over. And she said what she learned from this was don't take no cutoffs. And I thought if we live today, that would probably be a saying on on hats and shirts. Right. Don't take no cutoffs. Don't take no cutoffs. <laughs> yep. And that's funny that you brought up, you know, her her letter back. There was another little girl's letter back that actually told the story that you you talked about with the man with the rolling pin, you know, who had to give it up. Here's this big giant man with tears in his eyes because he has to get rid of the rolling pin that his mother made very good biscuits with. Yes. <laughs> And I'm like, can't you just like tuck that rolling pin down your pants and save it? And these people are <laughs> right. like, throw that eight ounces of wood out. We can't afford the weight. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Poor guy. Lost his I wonder, power. I wonder if he made it. I didn't, don't remember the name of the guy who did. I wonder if he well, made it. Well, his name was Stark, I believe. And he went with Stanton the first trip to go back to get the mules. Yeah. But he was too sick to go back with Stanton. So that's when Stanton went back with the two Indians. Went alone. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. So See? that's how that's how that ended up panning out. But I, I just couldn't imagine. I it just the the desperate situation they were in. Uh, horrible mothers watching their kids starve, you know, boiling down, like you said, those hides into this glue uh, gross hardly edible thing but the breens and the the reeds kept their whole families intact oh that you made a really good point so the reeds james reed he didn't lose any of his children and the breen family we didn't talk about them much they weren't from ohio but they those are the only two families that stayed intact exactly Everybody else lost somebody exactly it was the breens who found the cabin that had no roof uh, they had the best cabin because they were the first to come across it. And the uh, Keysburgs kind of set up a like a little shelter that came off of that Breen's cabin. Oh, a lean-to. Yeah, they made a lean-to yes, off that cabin. they made a lean-to off that cabin. And the graves went two miles out and made their camp. It's almost like Frank Graves really didn't want to be around too many people for some reason. Uh, but he had the Reed family. 
he took the Reed family in because he felt a little responsible that Reed was sent out to his death. So he thought at that time. Yeah, he was banished. Well, he promised he would take care of his family. And he probably said, boy, if push comes to shove, that Keysburg's going to start eating people. <laughs> I want my family a couple miles away. Right, right. Oh, my Lord. But, um, you know, like I said, it's just it's so interesting. When I found out there were so many Ohio people involved, I was like, oh, I got to tell Paul about this one. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. It was a lot of work trying to boil this story down into two episodes. So, listen, if anybody likes uh, this story and they want to know more, The Indifferent Stars Above is a really good book. There are several books uh, about it, but that's the one that really got Steve's attention. Um, just go find a, find a book. Yes. Well, Steve, thank you for being our armchair detective tonight. Oh, it was my pleasure. <laughs> I'm a big fan. You know, I like you guys, I tell everybody about you. <laughs> well, just, just share us. Share us with your friends and family, Steve. That means the world to us. That's right. That's right. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. A Basic Wagon is the name of an alternative rock group out of Stark and Harrison counties that specialize in very short songs. The song we're using tonight, Blood on the Mountain, is just over a minute long. A Basic Wagon is made up of Josh Arthurs on drums, lead vocals, and percussion, and Nathan Mitson on everything from guitar and keyboard to ukulele and accordion. Josh told me, Our lyrics are written in a way that they can be interpreted to mean many things. Blood on the Mountain, for us, is about feeling lost and feeling as though you have no identity and de-evolving into something that is maybe not even human. Steve, I swear to God, he said this. It was completely random that this band offered this song while I was, I was writing this episode. So, of course, it seemed fate. Anyway, A Basic Wagon has released three albums of what they call micro songs. And uh, they say that's their way of unshackling from the pop music format. And it's a great option for people who get bored easily. Their latest album is called Glowing Nowhere. And it can be streamed or purchased anywhere you get your music. You can also follow them on Instagram and keep up with their activities on their website, abasicwagon.com. Well, let's have another listen to Blood on the Mountain by A Basic Wagon. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around 
go home.